I didn't learn what you and I know when it comes to finding the right investments, to working with investors, to creating true value in that. Traditional education is not designed, for the most part, to teach you how to be an entrepreneur. We were joking around about this before uh, the podcast started. If you wanna make money, figure out how to solve a problem. That's what entrepreneurs do. I'm super positive, I'm super optimistic when it comes to the state of the world because I think that America creates the best environment in the world for entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs are the ones that solve problems. It's not, it's not college, college doesn't solve your problems, politicians don't solve your problems. Entrepreneurs solve problems. Break free from modern-day slavery. Live the freedom trinity of financial freedom. Time freedom. And location freedom. Live in true fulfillment with a foundation of growth and balance in health. Relationships. Spirituality and having fun doing what you love most. Let us show you the way. Welcome to Freedom Hack Radio. Welcome back to another episode of Freedom Hack Radio. I'm your host, Bryce Robertson. And today, my friends, we have the man, Christopher Larson, in the house to help teach us about profitability, talk about his amazing journey, and help a lot of entrepreneurs out there get to the next level, um, which is literally the brand that Christopher Larson has created. He has a next level podcast. He's also an amazing author, and he is a successful syndicator. He's an awesome bloke. He's an athlete. And uh, Christopher Larson, welcome to Freedom Hack Radio, brother. It's exciting to have you here, man. Oh, Bryce, it's so good to be here. And uh, what a wonderful intro. What a wonderful intro. You got me You got me beaming here. I'm all fired up now. Beautiful. Well, while you're beaming, the place I always like to go first is what's giving you the most gratitude today, brother? Yeah, gratitude. So this past weekend, and, and Bryce, I know you and I, you and I talk a lot. I did my first duathlon I've ever done. So I raced, I raced bicycles for over 20 years. And, but I've never done, I've never done a triath, triathlon, never done a duathlon because I really don't like to run that much. I love to ride my bike. I spent a lot of years doing that. But my son and I signed up to do this duathlon. So he signed up for it. I signed up for it. He's 12 years old. So he did his first duathlon. I did mine um, this past Sunday. And the, the time that I get to spend with my family um, and really getting to see my two young boys start to grow into young men just makes me very grateful. Um, and the reason is I, my father passed away when I was five years old. And I did not get to have that experience with my father. And it's something that I, I really cherish getting to experience with my two boys. That's amazing, man. And I'm seeing it firsthand, you know, the things that you guys are doing and like the competitions that you guys compete in, also the events that you go to, the traveling that you're doing. Um, I mean, he's living a pretty freaking rock star lifestyle, man. I don't, is it, does he get it yet? Or is he just think, uh, hey, this is I like what life is? You know, we do, we do talk a lot about gratitude. Um, and the way the world works in our family, Bryce. And you know, I know it's, it's something that's near and dear to your heart um, with respect to, to educating others in the possibilities that are available out there in the world. 
the thing is, as adults, we already kind of know how the world works as children, you know, especially, you know, my boys are 10 and 12, you know, they're, they're kind of sheltered, right? They have their own little world. They don't see a lot of the rest of the world. So we have tried to give them some experiences that allow them to see um, how fortunate they are. And we talk about it as well. We talk about money. We talk about the way the world works and how money works within the world. And we, you know, we sometimes do, um, we have, we have issues. We have challenges with them as, as any, um, relationship, you know, whether it's children or whether your partner, um, and as you and I've talked about in the past with respect to the importance of having a good, uh, partnership in, in your life. And when we have those challenges, I try to, I try to illustrate how, you know, they're very fortunate and it's not that we don't have enough. The issues that we have, especially in America today is that we have too much. And I know this is something that's like really close to your heart too, because um, at next level, you're teaching entrepreneurs how to get to the next level, young entrepreneurs specifically, because that's our future. And also, you've, I believe you've started to branch out and like educating the youth, like younger kids um, in a book, I believe. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So thanks for bringing that up. So, you know, look, Bryce, we founded Next Level in Income to help educate people, to help educate and give opportunities for people to achieve financial independence. So our website, nextlevelincome.com. We have our book also by the same name, nextlevelincome.com. By the way, if you're listening today, you can get a free copy and I will send you a copy if you go to nextlevelincome.com and click on the book link. But yes, I also have um, if you go to nextlevelincome.com forward slash kids, you can get a free copy of a book that kind of like yours, it was a collaboration. So I was invited to write a chapter on helping children become more financially confident and really helping parents become more financially confident to help their children. And I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk these days in terms of um, both sides. You see how financial literacy, like it was just mandated in South Carolina. Um, I live in North Carolina, right down the road across the border in South Carolina, they mandated financial literacy courses. I saw they mandated earlier this year in, in Florida. I think that's fantastic. Then you have the other side of the spectrum where you have uh, the government saying, hey, if you've put yourself into debt um, to uh, go get an education you know, and, and you meet certain criteria, we're gonna wipe out $10,000 of that debt. I find these things at, odd, at, at odds with one another. And I think that, you know, if you're going to say, hey, we're going to grant you uh, basically this gift, you know, some might call it a bribe if you're on a certain side of the political aisle of $10,000 to pay off a portion of your student loan. Well, maybe you should have something that says, hey, you need to pass this financial literacy course so you don't do this again. Or so you don't teach your children the same lesson that you were taught and they go through the same experience. And that's one of the things that I write about. Um, I have five lessons that I talk about in the book. And the last lesson is teach your children the true benefit and the true cost of college. And I think one of the challenges we have in, in the world is it's, it's like a language, right? If I go to, so I'm going to be traveling to Mexico here soon. If I go to Mexico and I speak no Spanish, I'm, I'm, I can get by, you know, I can make my way. I can speak a little bit of Spanish here and there. Some people speak English and they can translate for me, but I might be taken advantage of. You'd I be might paying the be gringo tax, man. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, Hey, you know, if, 
you know, and it happens. People try to take advantage of you. So sometimes I pretend not to speak any Spanish and I see what's going on. And I'm like, Hey, I know exactly what you're saying to one another. And it's, it's amazing what happens when you do that. Um, it's the same thing in the world today. So I like to use the example of monopoly, which if you look at the cover of my book, you have the monopoly pieces here with the houses and the hotel. Well, people say, Oh, Chris, it's not fair. You know, um, the rich don't pay their fair share in taxes or, you know, yeah, you, know, you go to college and you have all this student debt. Well, if we sat down to play Monopoly, Bryce, and I read all the rules and I played a bunch of times before, and you never played before, and you didn't take the time to read the rules, who do you think has a better chance of winning? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do, right? Absolutely. I have the experience. I have the knowledge. It's the same thing in the world we live in today. If you don't understand tax strategy, but even more, if you don't even have basic financial literacy, for instance, if you can't determine the ROI, the return on investment of, an, of, of something that you're going to invest in, how are you going to make a good choice with that money? College is the same way. College is an investment, right? It's an investment of your time. It's an investment of your resources, your money. If you can't figure out the ROI of a college education for yourself or your children, well, you may not make a good decision. And you know what? It may make sense to get to go into debt to go to college. But for a lot of people, it doesn't. And I think if we started with basic financial literacy with this next generation, we're going to end up in a much better place in a lot of different ways. And the interesting thing about that is, is that you could go to university for like four years, eight years to learn something, to get a stamp on it. And, um, you know, it's a long drawn out path and it's expensive where this financial literacy piece is actually three feet within our reach. And all we have to do if we're not financially literate is carve out, say, eight hours to sit down and read a book. Yeah. And the return on investment after that is after eight hours of dedicating some time, maybe you're doing half an hour a day for 16 days or one hour a day for eight days, uh, or maybe you sit down and do the whole thing. But yeah. after eight hours, you can have financial literacy. And then it's, it's like those horses that have the blinders on and they're just yes. seeing like this. But then, boom, read Chris's book, take one of his courses, it's lifted. And now you actually yeah. see what's really yeah. out there. Um, it's really That's interesting amazing. how close this is within our reach. That's the thing that I just find so mind boggling. Um, it's not this huge, big, complex thing that we have to learn and do a bunch of courses. And like, you just have to understand how the money game works. And it was That's designed right. to be confusing with confusing words for a, a good reason. Sure. Yeah. And I think, listen, I think I, I have a really good friend. Um, actually, we, we rafted the uh, Grand Canyon together. So we spent almost three weeks in the middle, middle of nowhere in the Grand Canyon. Um, that was one of my favorite spots there. Um, which is why I have that picture on my wall. And it truly was a, a life-changing adventure. Um, and he's, he's an engineer. He's, he's kind of uh, dry. And he jokes because he's, a, he's an upper-middle-class white male. And he, he says things like, and he's joking around, but he's not. He's like, why would I want the status quo to change? Like if people say, hey, you, know, you, should, you, know, you should come out and support this, this cause. And he'll say to them, why, why would I want the status quo to change? And he challenges people. He wants to see kind of the way they're thinking. But the point is, if you've gotten to a point where you understand this, there's no incentive for you to change the game. So if I'm playing you in Monopoly and I've read the rules and I've, I'm winning, there's no incentive for me in the, in the real world to teach you the rules because I'm, 
I'm winning. I have a competitive advantage. If mm. I spent the last 20, 25 years building my skill set and my knowledge, you know, why should I be expected to give my money to somebody that hasn't taken the initiative or, or doing that? And I'm being a little harsh here, but my point is you can't expect someone that is winning the game, whether they're a politician or they're a business person, to come to your aid. Only you can assist yourself. And I was sitting there having a conversation with a young man. Um, eh, it was probably, it was more than five years ago, but it was less than 10 years ago. And he said, college should be free to everybody. Everybody has the right to a free education. I said, but they already have that. And he looked at me and he's like, what do you mean? I said, everybody has a free education already. I was like, I don't understand why you think that we should pay for college for everybody. And he just stared at me and I pulled my, my phone out of my pocket and I held it up and I said, it's right here. I said, there's more knowledge in the palm of your hand than I had when I was your age or when I, when I was your age and went to college, he's about 15 years younger than me. And the thing is I have an MBA in finance price. And what I can tell you is what I learned in that program was conventional knowledge. I didn't learn what you and I know when it comes to finding the right investments to working with investors, to creating true value in that traditional education is not designed for the most part to teach you how to be an entrepreneur. And look, we, we just had a, we just were joking around about this before uh, the podcast started. If you want to make money, figure out how to solve a problem. That's what entrepreneurs do. I'm super positive. I'm super optimistic when it comes to the state of the world, because I think that America creates the best environment in the world for entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs are the ones that solve problems. It's not, it's not college. College doesn't solve your problems. Politicians don't solve your problems. Entrepreneurs solve problems. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, I keep driving home that we live in a world of balance of 50% positive and 50% negative. And that goes down to the most micro to the most macro in the universe as well. And so uh, said differently, uh, we can expect 50% reward, 50% challenge, regardless of what we do. So if that's yeah. going to be the landscape, wouldn't we yeah. want our challenges to be more exciting challenges, which is something that you and I spoke about before we yeah. jumped on this call together is that we have our own internal challenges with things that are happening with business and growth. But like yeah. they're pretty cool challenges to have. Whereas on Absolutely. the flip side of the coin, you know, there's people over in the UK right now. There's like 10% of people in the UK that can't afford to have the heating on in their house. And they ha literally have to choose between the heat on in their house or food in their mouth. 10% of people in the UK. And um, that's mind boggling. That's a challenge. That's a legit challenge. Um, challenges are not going to go away, but they can be replaced with higher quality challenges sure. if we take care of the financial piece and get a little bit educated and start making some moves. And yeah. so Love that. Know, really, it's up to us. You spoke on it before to keep our power in house, because if we outsource our power and give our power away and delegate to somebody else to solve our problems, they might solve it at the expense of something else that we wouldn't have consented to give away. Um, That's right. I think yep. in a lot of circumstances right now, freedom could be that blank to be filled in that people could be offering in exchange for, you know, save me. And so this is an opportunity for us to stand up 
uh, especially in this country, this amazing country of built on strength. And, you know, so many people from all over the world are actually looking at this country as being like the last savior of freedom. And what it really takes, I believe, is for people to stand up and to take their own power, take control of themselves. And it's really, really much easier than many of you think. Pick up Chris's book. How long would it take to read your book front to back if you sat down? Oh, I know multiple people who've read it less than two hours. So mm-hmm. yeah, you could, I designed it. It's only, look, if uh, I'm opening it right now, I forget exactly how many pages it is, um, but it's a small book. It's a hundred pages. So you can, you can literally read this book on an hour and a half flight. If you're focused and you're sitting there um, or a weekend or, or during the week, if you spend say 30 minutes uh, each evening. Um, and yeah, look, I talk a lot about what we talk about Bryce, but I also talk about my struggles. And, you know, I think that, uh, you mentioned 50% positive, 50% negative, and you have this push and pull in your world. And you can apply that to a lot of different things. You know, if you're a successful business person, you know, there was, I think it was good to great um, by uh, Collins. He talked about like the traits of people that are successful in business. And the thing is, they're not right necessarily more often than they're wrong. They just happen to fail more. They fail faster. They, they, they go more and they get up. And that's like grit like Michelle Duckworth writes, writes about. So, you know, I talk about um, losing my father and that's another author, Malcolm Gladwell talks about what are called desirable difficulties. So if you're struggling in life and you're listening today and you're like, yeah, Chris, it's easy for, easy for you to say, or Bryce, it's easy for you to say, you've, you've achieved that. The thing is we've both struggled, right? And the message is if you go through difficulties early in life, and this goes back to kind of bringing it full circle back to the children, and, and uh, kind of the future of our country. I believe if you struggle early in life, you have an advantage later in life because mm-hmm. I believe that everything compounds in, in mm-hmm. our world. You know, money compounds, right? Absolutely. Like compound interest. I believe time and experience compounds as well. So if you go through something early in life and, and you can say, well, hey, this isn't so bad. I had a guy that worked for me. He was a Green Beret, former Green Beret, Okay. He'd have, we'd have a really bad day. I, I was in, I used to work in the hospital. So I worked in the hospital for 18 years and, uh, have a really tough day, you know, some challenges, things didn't go well. Maybe the surgeon was upset and he'll, he'd say, well, at least I didn't get shot at today. At least I didn't get shot at today. That's what he would say. That yeah. was his perspective. And he was very resilient because he'd been through, through some really rough stuff in his life, you know, like actually being shot at right? In, in war zones. Okay. That's, that's pretty bad. So if you're having a bad day and you're thinking, oh, this is a really bad day. Okay. It's a really bad day. Somebody try to kill you today. Somebody shoot at you today. You know, are you laying, are you sleeping in a ditch cold and wet? Because if you've done that, you've gotten up, you know, if you've run, you know, 40 miles, if you've, you know, ridden, you know, 10 hours on your bike and you're like, okay, I didn't die. That didn't kill me. You know, I can get through that. David Goggins says, Hey, when you hit, when you hit your limit, you're probably only about 40%. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the lessons that if you go through difficulties and you realize that that didn't kill me, you're probably going to be stronger later on in your life. And I gone on the David Goggins. I actually realized that literally by taking on one of the challenges that he threw out there called the four by four by 48, where you run four miles every four hours, 48 hours. And when I got into the second day, I think it was like my second run on the second day. Mm. Um, I still had four more runs to go. Uh, Something happened and I just, I broke through. Like I thought I was at my limit and I just broke through and like the whole end of it, 
like the last run, I ended up doing 10 miles and I just went for it because I was just super energized. And I, I, wow. I had heard him say it before that when you're at, when you think you're at hundred percent, you're only at 40%, but I didn't actually know what that felt like until I went through that challenge. And, um, it's pretty, give me amazing. goosebumps, buddy. Yeah. Give me yeah. goosebumps. Yeah. I'm like, you know, our, the best UFC fighters out there are usually kids that got picked on at school and bullied, yeah. you know, yeah. which seemed terrible at the time. And then they turned it into conquering. So while yeah. we have the time here to take a little bit of a deep dive there, can we yeah. wind back the clock a little bit? And can you take us on the journey of what it's been like to be Christopher Larson, what your youth was like, and then how you turned any of these things into what you've created today? Yeah. So look, first off, I, I want to say that I truly believe I'm very fortunate for being born in America and I've been given certain gifts. And, you know, whether, whether you believe that's, you know, um, by nature or the universe or God, I would, I would say, yes, you know, I'm, I think we're all very fortunate. We're all gifted. We're all talented in our own ways. So I've been given a certain set of gifts. I was born into an environment, um, for, for a reason to help, to help put me into a certain place. Um, but I grew up in a firmly middle-class, you know, neighborhood. Um, my father died when I was five and, we didn't have, we didn't have a ton. He was an entrepreneur. So he, he'd set things up pretty well, but when he died, you know, the, the income stopped, he had a little bit of life insurance. My mom was smart enough to set that aside. So my sister and I had a little bit to, to help get us through college. Um, he had uh, Corvette collections, so she sold those off to help us. Um, but it was it was challenging. I mean, my grandmother made her clothes. You know, I remember eating. I never liked vegetables very much when I was young because I thought vegetables came out of a can. And I'm going to tell you that canned vegetables suck. That's why I have a garden today because I like to eat fresh food. I like to eat great food, and you know, like I I, I buy really good groceries. We eat really good meals, and part of the reason is. You know, when I was younger, we didn't get that. Like going to Sizzler. I don't know if everybody that's listening has been to a Sizzler steakhouse. Um, I don't even know you can call it a steakhouse. Um, but uh, you know, that was like, that was a real treat for us. Um, I remember when I got Little Caesars pizza at a friend's house for the first time, I thought how great that was because we never had like pizza like that. Um, but it wasn't that bad. You know, we lived in a, a really solid middle class, um, you know, home growing up. The big thing is my mother was there for me to help support me. Um, as a student, she was a teacher and she made sure that I, I got good grades and she supported me in baseball and basketball and those sorts of things. Um, she ended up remarrying when I was 11. So I have a stepfather um, and, you know, they were supportive, but they were, um, they were, they didn't really hold me back, Bryce, but they also didn't push me. And some people may say, well, you know, that's, that's not great. They didn't push you towards things. But the interesting thing is I had to kind of make my own path and I had to convince them to help me. So I started racing bike bicycles when I was 14. And look, you're talking about the UFC fighters. I walked home from school and, you know, growing up in a neighborhood that's, you know, kind of like, uh, kind of like on the track, so to speak, like we had some rough kids, man. I got picked on. I mean, I got beat up on the way home from school and I wasn't a big kid. So I learned, I learned how to, develop relationships. I learned how to talk, you know, I learned how to talk my way out of stuff. So you know, if there was an altercation, I would, I kind of like learn to talk my way out of things um, and do that. Cause I just didn't have, I didn't have the skill set to, you know, if you're in third grade and there's a sixth grader, that's twice your size, you know, there's only so much you can do before you get your ass beat. Um, and the alternative is you just don't get your ass beat. Right. So 
it's like, okay, let's, let's avoid that situation um, and do that. But it also led me to kind of yearn for, you know, like freedom and an escape. And when I was 13, I got a mountain bike. It was when, in the early nineties, mountain bikes were coming into being. I was like, I want a mountain bike. And I'll never forget that feeling of getting to ride my bike and like leaving the neighborhood. I felt like I can do anything I want at this point. So I developed this real passion. Um, and I also never forget, I was getting chased one day in the neighborhood by this kid on a bike and I started to ride away from him and he couldn't catch me. And I just rode away from him. I was stronger than that guy. So next year I get this mountain bike. I, I uh, get invited by a family friend from church to ride to Annapolis, which is 10 miles away. And I kept up with him and he's like, wow, you're pretty strong. Um, and after riding with him all summer, he invited me to watch him at a bike race. So our family went and watched him race. And I thought, this is really cool. So I worked all winter, shoveled driveways, had a paper route, saved up uh, almost a thousand dollars, which, you know, I was 14 years old. This is 30 years ago. So yeah. it's like a couple, couple thousand bucks right now for a teenager. Um, and it was actually, uh, I, I needed about $800 to buy this bicycle, this road bike, this racing bike that I wanted. But then you got to buy shoes, you got to buy a helmet, you got to buy like the gear and stuff to go with it. So I saved up about $1,000 and bought this bike and I started racing. So I started racing bikes when I was 14 years old. And that's where really, you know, I was in the band, I was in the orchestra, I was kind of a musician, I played baseball. I wasn't a real, real like, you know, fit kid. Um, you know, I was kind of, you know, it's maybe five foot seven, five foot eight, you know, 135 pounds. Well, then I grew to six feet tall and I didn't gain a pound and I was riding my bike and I turned into a, a really good cyclist. And the neat thing was during that period, you know, I turned 15 and then I started to go to races, got my driver's license. So now that freedom of riding my bike turned into the freedom of getting to drive a car, you know, sometimes, and I don't know how, why my parents allowed me to do this up to like New York you know, with bikes and, you know, I started racing. So it really, it gave me a lot of confidence. It taught me the discipline to train. It taught me that you can, you know, you know, the, the skills that you might have might not be what the world um, thinks they should be. Cause like I was playing baseball and basketball, like typical, you know, American sports cycling, by the way, is the, is the second most popular sport in the world behind soccer, but mm. in America, wow. it's not, not real popular. Right. So I kind of found this sport that was for, you know, kind of outcasts, you know, I, I feel like I never really fit in. I was kind of a little bit of a black sheep. Um, cause I didn't, you know, I didn't really conform to, you know, the way the world worked, but I found the sport that I fell in love with and it gave me, you know, all these life lessons, um, along the way. That's interesting. I think being a black sheep is probably a savior <clears throat> these days. <laughs> it's probably that you're on the right path. Um, when you're riding your bike in the latest stages of it, did, yep. have you ever gone to that point psychologically where you're kind of like riding away from the people behind you that are chasing you kind of like the kids? That you know, chasing? what's funny is Bryce, I don't know if I've ever actually consciously thought about that between that, that day and today. Mm -hmm. Um, but going back in time, you know, ask, having you ask me that question and kind of thinking about it, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't. I don't ever feel like I was riding away from something, but I will say this, um, cycling, you know, when you're riding for two, three, four or five, six, I mean, I've, I've ridden my bike more than 10 hours at a time before it's a very meditative experience because, mm -hmm. you know, you're focused, 
you you have to kind of go internally to to maintain and and, and drive that strength, especially when you're pushing your limits. You know, just like running um, or any other physical endeavor. So if you're listening, you're an athlete. You know what I'm talking about. You know, when you're reaching your limits, especially in an endurance sport. Typically, you know, you're not you're not going 100. percent You're going at say 70 percent for a very long period of time, right? And that's the neat thing about cycling. You can push yourself and bury yourself kind of over and over again, because you can always just like skip a couple pedal strokes and sit on your saddle and then pedal, keep pedaling again. And you go up a hill and you go down a hill and you coast and then you're like, all right, I'm going to keep pedaling and do it. And what, what for me, when I was training, a lot of times I would kind of pick a rival in my head that I was trying to beat and racing specifically became a very emotional experience for me. And that's one of the reasons I quit racing now that I have children is because I would, I would use all of the emotion to my advantage. I would use the positive and I would use the negative and I would take all of that emotion from both sides and I would, I would push it inside of me and I would channel that emotion into physical energy. That's huge, man. That's amazing. I watched a documentary the other day uh something about like the, his nickname was chainsaw and he's downhill mountain biker can't remember what his name is um oh, wow. but he ended up wearing, winning like the world cup like fully one year and he won individual races in the downhill world cup as well yeah um, the interesting thing is is like he had speed so he would go down these gnarliest courses with like super tight turns and trees and rocks and he's just bombing down he was going so hard that when he was in the air, he's pedaling, like he just didn't stop. He was just like going for it. And <laughs> when it. you were explaining what you were explaining, I was yeah. kind of like envisioning that. I'm like, he's not even stopping when he's in the air. Like there's no use to it, but maybe he gets a little bit extra momentum, but he's just like so committed to going for it. It doesn't matter if he's got traction or not. He's, he's spinning those wheels. Yeah, no, it's uh, and that that's another cool thing about cycling. There's so many different disciplines in cycling. You have downhill mountain biking, which is almost like riding a mountain bike. You have you have track cycling, where you have guys that are built like literally like football players. Some mm -hmm. of the best track cyclists in in American history, they literally pulled these guys off the football field and put them on a bike. I mean, they're 200 pounds, just jacked, you know, monster legs. Yeah, and then you have you know guys you know that are you know that race the Tour de France that are you know 140 pounds soaking wet. And, you know, they can go up a mountain, you know, with the speed of a, a, a motorcycle, you know, and some of these motorcycles, it's, it's wild. Like they'll go up these climbs and there's so much torque being put out that motor, some of the motorcycle engines fail and the cyclists just keep going. It's wild. Yeah. That's wild, man. Yeah. So how did all of this convert to you becoming an entrepreneur okay. and, you know, how has that all played out up to where you're at today? But before we go there, I just had a quick yeah. little thought in my mind. Sure. How did you end up getting that like 800? Because I know you're a capital raiser right now. So that was maybe yeah. your first like capital raising experience or attracting yep. money. How did you get that first yep. like thousand bucks? Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, I'll never forget when I was a kid, my sister and I shared a bedroom kind of in the back corner of our house. And we had this uh, dresser, which seemed like, you know, it seemed like it was as tall as the ceiling now. Um, but it was probably like five feet high. And I would put my money on top of the dresser. I'd stack it up. So it was always kind of a saver. Um, and I remember uh, I was at camp one year and, you know, they said, Hey, I was, I had a good work ethic too. It's like, Hey, whoever, you know, we're going to pick up trash. And I had one of the council, the counselors were doing awards and they gave me this award because I picked up the most trash out of anybody. And I got a Snickers bar. But you know what I did with that Snickers bar? 
I stuck it in the freezer and stayed in the freezer for months because I was like saving that Snickers bar <laughs> for some moment in time when I would, you know, want it more. And I don't know if like in my head, Bryce, just having that and knowing I could eat it whenever I wanted was more important. But I did the same thing with money. The thing is, my mom would take this stack of bills that I would accumulate and she'd stick it in the bank. But I was always a good saver. So I had a paper route. And then you know, this is what really taught me um, that you don't want a nine to five. So I had friends that would work part time and I minimum wage back then was like five bucks, right? So they go work at their job and they get paid like 20 bucks a day after school. And, you know, they work for like a month and then they pay tax, right? So, you know, what is that? A hundred bucks a week. So they, you know, they make say 400 bucks, um, you know, working uh, in, um, you know, a part-time job, you know, for a month. Well, I would go and I would, you know, uh, rake leaves in, in like, you know, these affluent neighborhoods where my uh, stepfather would do jobs or I'd shovel driveways. I'd make that much in one day or two days in one weekend. So, you know, I would, I would do, I would shovel driveways in the winter. I would do uh, leaves in the, uh, in the um, fall. I would, I had my paper out. And then um, the neat thing was I saved that money up pretty quickly, like just in, in a season, you know, over a fall and a winter. And then when I started racing bikes, I'd go race bikes. And, you know, once after a few years, once I started, you know, learning how to train and reaching some success, I'd go race and some weekends I'd come home with 500 bucks cash from racing. Yeah, man. So, um, you know, I had kind of these, all, all these little entrepreneurial uh, endeavors along the way. And, um, you know, but again, I learned that there were ways to make money where you didn't have to go work for somebody else and get paid, you know, for your time you just, you get paid to accomplish a specific job. Like we were saying earlier to solve someone else's problem. And how did that convert into business and entrepreneurship and real estate and all of the amazing things you're up to today? Yeah. So I think um, it opened my eyes because I had this framework in my mind where, you know, somebody would say, Hey, like you should go get a job, right? Like you should go get a part-time job and work and make money. And I'd think, well, why would I do that when I can go and do this other thing and make more money in less time? Um, I rented my video games. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I hope no like authorities are listening that could, uh, but I would do people's homework for them. I told my son, I was joking around with my sons and my son was like, dad, isn't that cheating? If you do somebody's homework for them. And I was like, yeah, I wasn't really thinking too much about that back then, son. Like I probably shouldn't have been doing that. But uh, yeah, I, I got paid to do people's homework. Uh, I rented video games. Like I found all these other ways, you know, where I could where I could make money, where I didn't have provide to provide value, where you like, could provide yeah. value in exchange yeah, exactly. for money. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe I, I made them promise that they wouldn't turn it in, that they would only use that for their own education. You know, I think we signed, maybe we had a contract back then, but um, like tutoring, right? <laughs> Maybe I should say that I tutored kids, um, but no, it, op my mind was open because I said, wait a minute, there's, there's all these other opportunities out there. And that's what an entrepreneur does, right? They're always looking to solve a problem. So when I got to college, I had the same ideas. I sold lofts. So I would, I would, um, I don't know if anybody or, you know, but these, these wooden loft beds. So at the end of the school year, especially the female students, they're like, Hey, I got this loft in my, in my dorm room. I need to get it out of my dorm room. And I'd say, Hey, I'll take your loft out if I can have it. Cause they're like, well, I don't want it. What am I going to do with it? Nobody wants to buy a loft at the end of a school year. They want to get rid of a loft. So 
it's basically a loft where you set your mattress on top of it. And then you can put your desk and stuff underneath of it. So it kind of gives your dorm room a second story, if you will, mm -hmm. um, like a giant shelf, um, like half of a bunk bed, essentially. So, you know, and then for, for the guys that said, Hey, I can take mine down myself. I would buy them for 20 bucks. And then at the beginning of the next school year, I would sell them for a hundred dollars. So, you know, my average cost for one of these beds was about 10 bucks a bed. Um, I, I spent my time, I'd move them, I'd store them over the, you know, over the summer and then I'd sell them at the beginning of the year. And I actually had a deal with one of the local churches where I would give them a, a nice big donation so I could sell them in their uh, parking lot, which they loved. Um, there's so, a lot of components yeah. to what you created there. There's like all yeah. of these like different pieces you need to negotiate. Yeah. 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 yeah there's negotiation, there's sales. And um, I remember I, I lost my spot where I could sell my lofts. And I mean, we were screwed. I was like, I have a hundred loft beds, $10,000 worth of loft beds to sell um, in basically a weekend. And I had nowhere to sell them. And I was, I was looking, I came up to this church and, you know, I came up to the, uh, and look, I was raised, I was raised in the church. I spent a lot of time in the church. And I said, Hey, listen, I got this issue. I got these lofts here. I need a place to sell them. Um, I said, I don't expect you to let us do this, you know, for free. I said, but I want to make an, a nice donation, um, to your church. I'm going to give you 10% of the profits. And you know, I, he said, he said, I don't have a problem with that. So we were, we were there and we were gone by Sunday morning and, you know, they got a nice, uh, a nice donation to the church. We had a nice place to sell that was right adjacent to campus. Um, but yeah, I'll never, that was a, that was, that was a moment where I thought I might, I might be out of luck um, with, uh, you know, with all this inventory. And I'm sure you've been caught in similar situations further down the path of <laughs> entrepreneurship where you're like, I don't know how the heck I'm going to get out of this one, but I'm gonna. <laughs> well, so you know, I think, look, I, I tell my boys this, I'm going to, you know, try to kind of relate this back to kind of our, our some of our initial discussion here. Um, you're not stupid if you make mistakes. I think that's super important. You're not mm. stupid if you make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. We're talking about the business people that fail half the time and they're still super successful. Why? It's because they fail faster. It's okay to make mistakes. But I tell my boys, you're not stupid if you make a mistake, but you are stupid if you keep making the same mistake over and over again. Mm -hmm. That's not, that's not intelligent. And I say, look, if you make a mistake, learn from that mistake. So if they do something, I'll say, all right, boys, what did, what did you learn from that? So what I learned was you need to have a contingency plan in place. And I spent almost 20 years in the medical device industry, right? So I'm in the hospital. And when I was training reps, I'd say, hey, what's your plan A? Like, if everything goes right, what's your plan A? What's your plan B? What's your plan C? And then I'd say, what's your shit hits the fan plan? Like, basically, everything goes wrong and you are out of options. What are you going to do? Because remember, I'm going to set the stage here. I'm in, a, I'm in a hospital OR with a patient open on the table that's having surgery. And my plan A went wrong. My plan B went wrong. And my plan C went wrong. There are now two options. We solve the problem in some way, shape, or form, or that surgeon sews that patient up and brings them back for surgery another day. And that's a really bad option. When you wake up and somebody says, hey, Bryce, bad news. We cut you open. We started the surgery, but we couldn't finish it because we had an issue. And whether it was my fault or not, I got paid to solve problems. And I got paid to figure out like what those plans were um, down the road. So again, that experience taught me that, hey, your initial plan that you think will work 
might be terrific, but if it doesn't work or something goes wrong, you need to have a plan B. And it's a lot easier to tell somebody, Hey, look, we thought we were going to do this. You know, it, you know, we thought we were going to have, you know, this option, you know, this, this dessert, right? Oh, sorry. Sorry, sir. Your favorite dessert isn't here on the menu, but we do have a dessert for you. You might not be super happy, right? But at least I give, at least you get your dessert, right? At least you have something, you know, to finish the meal off if it's a special occasion. Um, but if you're a restaurateur, don't make that mistake, right? Have a, have a contingency plan. So then you're doing, you're working in the medical industry and you're like, I don't know, 15, 20 years deep in the medical industry. How did that convert over to being a full-time entrepreneur? What were the first steps you made and, and what have you created since then? Yeah. So I think, um, I think, so first off, I write about this in my book. When I was 19, I said, I want to be an investor. Okay. And I think this is an important mindset. So if you're listening, entrepreneurship, you know, freedom, investing, these all, these all play in together and being investor. A lot of people hear like investor and they hear wall street and they, they have this certain mindset, right? Well, being an investor can be like what we were talking about, Bryce, where you invest in, excuse me, in education, right? Being an investor is a mindset. It's, it's the understanding that you are going to put some resource that could be money, but it could also be time, right? You're going to put a resource into a plan of some sort or an investment of some sort, and you are going to expect a return on that. Now, I was mentioning how I like to have a garden, okay? Nobody in their right mind would prepare the soil for a garden, fertilize it, till it, plant seeds, water it, spend their time doing all these things, keeping you know, keeping pests out and doing all that if they didn't think it was going to bear fruit or vegetables of some sort, right? That's an investment. That's no different. What would you do if you're going to start a garden? You would educate yourself. You would figure out what, what plants are in season. You would go through all these steps to figure these things out. How is that any different than me analyzing a deal and determining, hey, is this going to make sense in this economic season? How much time, how much effort, what kind of plan do I need to do? to put it into this investment? And what is my return on the other side going to be? And oh, by the way, you know, how does that compare to all these other options that are out there? If you've ever planted a garden, you're investing. You're, you're following the same exact roadmap that you and I do, Bryce, when we look at all these different options that are out there. So that same family friend, Clint Provenza, when I was in college, that he got me into cycling, he gave me a money magazine. And I'll never forget, it was talking about starting a Roth IRA, which we'll talk about how I don't, I think you should not put your money into a 401k or retirement or, or retirement plans. We can have that conversation. But the more important part of that, about that article was it talked about compound interest. And it talked about if you put a small amount into your Roth IRA every month, you'll be a millionaire by the time you're 65. And I was like, it was compound interest. I was like, whoa. I was like, all right. So I started learning everything I could. This is my freshman year. Everything I could about the stock market investing, I became a day trader. So I was day trading and I was making, now I'm a junior in college at this point. I'd quit cycling. My best friend had passed away. And that really put me on a different mental track because I thought, well, wait a minute. When your father dies, when you're young, you don't have a lot of perspective. When your best friend dies, when you're 19 years old, now this hits you in the face because you think I may not live tomorrow. So you start to say, wait a minute, I'm riding my bike around in the circle. I'm spending 30 hours a week, 15, 20, sometimes 30 hours a week riding my bike. 
not going to parties. I don't have a girlfriend. I don't even have that many friends aside from the people I ride my bike with. I, I, I wouldn't drink any alcohol. Not that that makes life better. I wouldn't drink alcohol. I wouldn't eat a hot dog. I had a girlfriend. She brought me a hot dog one time, Bryce. And I said, I don't eat hot dogs. And I just remember the look on her face. And now I, now I think back to what, what an a-hole I, I must've seemed like when I made that statement, I wouldn't take an Advil. I mean, I was very draconian in my lifestyle. Okay. And then I realized that, wow, I'm not living life to the fullest. All right. So along the way, find the stock market, start day trading. I'm a junior. I'm making $5,000 a month day trading in the stock market. So I'm like, this is, this is pretty great. Well, after about the 10th night of not sleeping at 3 a.m. laying there awake, I thought, this is not how I want to spend the next 20 years of my life. You know, this is not investing. Okay. This is, this is like a job. So I started looking at other options um, that were out there and, and thought about that. Um, so I bought my first piece of real estate at 21 years old. And, but I decided I want to be an investor. Okay. The problem is with, if you want to be an investor, you need capital. You either need other people's capital or you need your own capital. So bought that first piece of real estate. Actually, I was able to buy my second piece of real estate um, without much of a job at all. I was working for the university. But then I said, hey, I need to do something that I can generate a lot of capital. And that's when I discovered medical device sales. Um, I said, hey, I want to find something where I can make over $200,000 a year. I can be an accredited investor and I can kind of have some autonomy. And the neat thing about sales is that you are really like an entrepreneur. You know, if you get a sales territory, I was paid a hundred percent commission. The company literally just says, Hey, here's your geography. So they point to a map, like the one behind you, Bryce, although it's, it's a lot smaller and they say, Hey, that's your geography, Chris, you can sell to anybody in that geography and whatever you sell, we're going to pay you a portion of the revenue that you generate. Good luck. And Bryce, I had periods of time in my career. I wouldn't speak to my manager for, for weeks, sometimes months. Because I was producing and if I needed something, they knew I would call them. And I, I set my system up and I ran my own little business um, within the company. Um, and that's how I, I really was able to generate a lot of the capital to invest um, during my career. And that's one of the hardest tasks too, to like go out there and kind of cold sell. Um, oh. I mean, I did multi-level marketing as one of my hustles in yep. the beginning and I think that like, you know, those types of like sales, conceptual, uh, entrepreneurial ideas or jobs or whatever should almost be a requirement alongside with financial literacy, yeah. because you get to understand yeah. the psychology of people, how people works, what works, what doesn't, how many people it takes for them to say yes, to actually get a conversion, because a lot of people don't do what they say they're going to do. How do you handle objections? I mean, that isn't just going to make you a successful entrepreneur. It's going to make you a successful husband, wife, partner, friend, like boss, like any of that stuff. It's yeah. all huge, huge skills. So that must have oh. like really set you up uh, and made things easier later on because I'm sure it was challenging at the time. Yeah. And I look, I'm getting to the answer to your question, which was like, how does it set you up to be an entrepreneur and, um, you know, successfully raise capital for deals? So number four, so again, nextlevelincome.com forward slash kids in those five lessons, we're going backwards. Five was, you know, teach your children how to understand the return on investment of college. Number four is help your children start a business. And whether it's a multi-level marketing business or like I did, I had my boys start a jump rope business where they were selling jump ropes at the gym while my wife and I were working out. 
um, anything. It teaches all these skills, Bryce. It teaches you have to learn how to how to figure out how to invest capital in the front end. They borrowed hundred dollars from me to buy their jump ropes, and they paid me that money back. They had to they had to learn quality control. So I had my little son Miles going through because he's kind of like the engineer, and he was making sure everything worked right before they sold them. You have to have communication. You have to have you know to communicate to people the benefits of something. Listen, if you're listening and you're like, sales is not for me, or I would never be a salesperson, Chris, or I can never do that. Look, if you've ever had a community, if you've ever had a conversation, if you've ever gone on a date, think about it this way, you've sold. Okay. Now you might say that's disgusting to think about like selling myself in a date. No, it's communicating. You need to understand, Hey, is this somebody that I want to spend my time with? And I want to communicate to them the benefits of them spending time with me. And then we're going to see if this is a good fit. And sales is the exact same thing. You know, I tell people, if you've ever been in an interview, that is, that is just selling where you are literally the product and you have to see if it's a good, if it's a good match. You have kids to, are doing you have it to, all the time too. If they want something, if they want that ice cream oh yeah, or the bike or whatever, they're selling. People. They're, they're relentless. natural salespeople. They are relentless. My, <laughs> oh my gosh. My, my older son is so persistent. It's, it's absurd. Um, and it's great. I never want to quash that. But the thing is, you need to understand like selling ice to an Eskimo, that's that's BS. Okay. That's that's a bad salesperson. That's an unethical salesperson. Unless unless the Eskimo doesn't have clean water, right? Then you can say, hey, do you really you need some clean ice, you know, um, to have whatever cocktail or whatever it might be. But you need to understand what is the problem that your client or prospective customer has. You need to understand your solution. So you have to be educated. You have to understand that solution that you have. Then you have to communicate that solution to your client and determine if the value that you can provide to your client is disproportionate, is, is higher than the cost to your client. And sometimes I have this conversation with investors every week. I say, well, I had this conversation today. Um, investor was saying, Hey, I really, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in investing in this and getting my money back within two years. Well, you know, this particular project had a five year timeline. And I said to him, you know what, if, if you need to have your money back in two years, this probably isn't going to be a good fit for you. Now, in reality, Bryce, there's, there's, there's a pretty good chance that this investor gets his money back in two years, but it's not guaranteed. And I would not be doing him a good service if I was kind of steering him in, in the wrong direction for my benefit. And at the end of the conversation, he said, you know what, this, this, I still am comfortable with this, but I'm going to, I'm going to think about this from a longer term perspective. And I have another project I'm going to do, you know, for that shorter term perspective. So, you know, the thing is, if, if you're selling, if you're trying to solve a problem, I think it's always better to be honest than upfront especially with the, with the downsides. And that's something I can talk about, like when something went wrong in the OR, um, but it's always better to be upfront when there's issues and be clear because you want a long-term relationship. That's what you want to build your business on. Yeah. And the kind of the hard thing with like sales, I suppose, is that in the beginning, we don't have a track record. So that's like the hardest part, probably where we feel like we're convincing people. But once we have a track record and we've delivered on our promises and the device or the thing we're selling or whatever it is, um, has delivered on what it, what it was going to deliver on, then the tables shift. 
everything changes, which is a position I know you're in right now. Now, when you offer an investment to your investment group, like sometimes like not everybody can fit in because there's yeah. so much demand, which is a whole another challenge as well. But you've already kind of proven the theory that your investments deliver and, and um, you know, you've got a solid track record. So how, how did this um, convert into you um, creating what you've created? Yeah, so it, it happened intentionally, but kind of by happenstance as well. So um, I started off first as an investor, as I mentioned before. So about 10 years ago, I invested in my first multifamily deal. I had a single family portfolio and I was, I was self-managing that. And I, ha I had this point in my life where both my boys uh, were born. My wife went back to work and you, you know, my wife, Bryce, she's an architect and she goes back to work part-time and both my boys go into daycare. And at the end of the year, I'll never forget, it was 2012. Uh, she, the both were, both boys were, um, we're uh, in daycare that year. My wife worked almost the full year. Uh, we looked at our taxes at the end of the year. We looked at our finances. We're doing our kind of year-end planning and wrap-up. And I had this number on a sheet of paper, and it was uh, $11,000. I showed it to my wife. And she's like, what is that? I was like, well, that's how much, that's how much um, we made last year with you working. Here's the thing. There was a negative sign in front of that $11,000. So after taxes and after daycare expenses, we lost $11,000 with my wife working. Now imagine you have a wife that's gone to school longer than you. She's amazing at what she does. She went to college. She went to grad school. She got her architecture degree. Um, she got her architecture license, which takes like about another three years of consistent work and apprenticeships and all this stuff. And I had to look her in the eye and tell her, and she said, wait a minute. What do you mean? We, we lost a lot. How do we lose $11,000 with me working? I said, well, it cost us more for you to work than, than, you know, uh, what you brought in. Imagine saying, Hey, you'd be better off staying home to someone like that. And I said, do you, I, I didn't want that. I said, do you want to stay home? And she said, no, I want to stay home. Now, if you met my older son, when he was that age, you'd understand entirely why she didn't want to stay home. But, um, so she, <laughs> <laughs> but she also loves what she does. Okay. And I think that's really important. Everybody, everybody has like those talents and skills. Like I was talking about earlier, Bryce, and we want to, we want to provide, we want to use those talents and skills. That's how we find value and, and true joy, in my opinion, in this world. And I said, all right, we need to do something different. So I looked at everything. Now, remember, I have an MBA in finance, right? But I had my head down and I was working my freaking tail off, you know, 60, 80, 100 hour weeks sometimes, okay? I would I work sometimes seven days a week, um, sometimes months on end. I work 10 weeks straight one time. I work seven months on call with 10 days, not in the hospital one time. I mean, just real long stretches. I know you've worked long stretches during your, your life too. You understand what I'm saying? Like, you know, it's being in the hospital, putting your head, being in a mine. I mean, you know, you're under fluorescent lights, not a lot of natural light. It's, it, it can, uh, it can be pretty grueling. I spent three nights sleeping in the hospital working 24 hours, three days in a row. Um, I didn't have a lot of time to look at other stuff. I didn't make it. So I picked my head up. I look at my investment portfolio again, MBA in finance. Do you know what our return or on our equity was in our real estate portfolio at the time? What's that? 7% before wow. tax. Yeah. So after tax, it was like 4%. Oh my. Yeah. And I was like, oh my goodness. So long story short, we discovered multifamily real estate 
and we made our first investment. Within two years, we'd sold off our entire single family portfolio. We moved everything into really commercial income producing real estate. And in 2015, formed a partnership with my first partner. And in 2016, we did our first syndication. So, you know, I was, I realized through all this that, hey, I have this scalable opportunity where I can, you know, have better investments, better returns in these bigger projects. And then I also found out that there was a thing called syndications where I was a partner with these general partners that would put these deals together. And my original partner and I, we said, hey, we can, we can do this too. Now we got help. We partnered with the group that we were investing with to do our first deal. But then I realized that, hang on a second, if I feel this way, I said, I want to have an out. I want to be able to not, not have to be on call by the time I'm 40 years old. I want to look at other opportunities that are in life. I realized in conversation that a lot of people were in my same shoes, almost everyone, even the surgeons that I was working with. So what I found was there was a lot of people that would come to me and say, hey, Chris, like, I know you have an MBA. I know you do real estate. Like, what, like, what do you do with your money? They started to ask me what I do with my money. And they said, well, can I do that too? So that first, in, that first syndication we put together had about 10 investors, raised $850,000 in, uh, over the course of a few months, actually several months in 2016, bought that first 100-unit apartment building. And then it was kind of like, wait a minute, we can, we can grow this and we can help out a lot of people. And also, you know, again, I'd like to work, I like to do things, but I didn't want to stay on call and be in that business. What was neat, Bryce, is once I made that decision, I was given the opportunity to take a leadership role with another company. And I was able to, to be in that leadership role with a, with a good friend of mine. Actually, I was just on the phone with him here before our call. He's still a friend to this day. And he had a distributorship. And I, I was a manager within his distributorship. He knew what I was doing with the real estate. And he was also an investor, which was pretty neat. And I was able to grow that business alongside. So I was working a lot, like 16-hour days. Um, but it was worth it. People are like, how do you do that? That's not sustainable. And I was like, well, it doesn't have to be because I kind of know where my end point is. Mm -hmm. um, but the neat thing is now I get to work with people that and, and share the message of what we do. That's why I wrote my book to talk about, you know, the value add strategy that we employ in the multifamily space. And, you know, I, I get to teach people that, hey, you can create a path to financial independence. And when you do that, what happens is you, you get to do what you love every day. And when you get to do what you love every day, you make better choices in your life. You have more energy, you help more people. And ultimately you live a life built around purpose, not, not desire, not need for money. You built a life around purpose. And when you have a life built on purpose, that is an endless well of energy that never runs out. Super powerful point, man. It's like, I know before financial freedom for me, I was making decisions out of necessity, things I had to do. I yeah. have to pay the bills. I have to yeah. work X amount of hours a week to pay the bills. If I want to go on a vacation, I have to work X amount of hours. Yeah. In addition to that, I want to build a business on the side. And like all these things were, were dependency. But then yeah. when I became financially free for the first time in my life, I was in a position where I'm like, I can make a decision based off my heart and my soul right now. Yeah. And then I just thought, wow, imagine a world or like even a city or a, or a small geographical location where the majority of people are making decisions based off their heart and their soul, not off need and necessity and, you know, circumstances, like what a powerful planet that is yeah. to live in. Yeah. 
I, I think it's amazing. A lot of people would say, well, that sounds like, you know, a utopian society. We can create that through socialism and, you know, well, here's the problem with that. If you don't earn it, you don't appreciate it. If you don't earn it, you don't appreciate it. And I think that's really important. And if you look at, and I write about this in the chapter that I, I wrote for that children's book about the Vanderbilts, the Vanderbilts within two generations lost the equivalent of $2 billion. Okay. It's, it's, it's incredible. Um, and maybe I may, and it may have been a couple more than a couple of generations, but anyway, basically losing $2 billion is an amazing feat if you think about it. Um, but the point is if you don't earn it, you don't appreciate it. And I just had a podcast on, um, with a gentleman by the name of David York, and he works with some of his clients are billionaires are legitimately billionaires. And these are some of the lessons that he talks about, which are, you need to teach your children to appreciate the businesses that your family has to appreciate how to earn money. And I think it's Warren Buffett that said, you know, give, give your children, um, ah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have to paraphrase because I don't, I don't know it exactly, but you want to, you want to give your children enough so that they can do any, anything that they want to do, but don't give them too much so that they don't do anything at all, essentially. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to say it, but the, the bottom line is, you know, if, if you create a plan for financial independence, which is not that difficult with the resources that are out there, I mean, between just, geez, with, with the podcast that you're listening to right now, with some of the books that we've talked about, you can do it. I think anybody that's making a decent living can achieve financial independence in seven years, like very comfortably. And the neat thing is I hit that point, Bryce, and I didn't even quit my job. And people are like, why didn't you quit? Why are you still doing this, Chris? And the thing was, I made so much more money because I was literally operating at such a high level of ethics. And I, I was working with people I wanted to, and I could make better choices. And I was just very, very comfortable because I didn't have to sell based on need. And I ended up going, you know, from, I ended up quadrupling the amount of money that I was making um, from working in the medical device, you know, business within two years. And I didn't have to make that money. So it's just neat when you don't have to have it, as uh, Vince Vaughn says in Swingers, you know, act like you don't need the shit and they give you the shit for free. Well, if you don't need the <laughs> shit, you're going to get a lot more shit in life. Like it's just the, you're because you have an abundance mentality. You've already, you know that you can live how you want to live and then you start to attract money. And I think that's something, um, again, it might sound a little ethereal to some people, but the universe, life, the universe is an energy game. And if we're not radiating the right energy, then we're not going to attract, you know, the right things and the things that we want in our lives. And having financial independence puts you in a state, like you said, where you can operate or have at least the ability to operate at your highest level. Yeah. And trending in that direction, the more the compound growth happens and exponential growth. And then we, yeah. that's where, I, that's where it gets to a point. And, you know, it, we're talking about it from the financial perspective. It could happen if you're an athlete as well, or if you're an actor and that's where people are like, Oh, they're, they're an overnight star. No, they're not. They're being exponentially compound growing for the last 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Even the red hot chili peppers before they became oh. famous, they had 12 years underground before they became famous. Yeah. And now they've got decades on that. Yeah. Oh, there's so many, yeah, there's so many examples, Bryce. And um, I mean, that's the thing. Like a lot of people are like, oh, how did wow, dude, you just up and quit your job, you know? It's like, well, I, that first piece of real estate was at 21. You mm -hmm. know, it took me, it took me 
a solid 15 years to really get to the point where the real estate was generating enough income um, for us to be, you know, comfortable. And again, I got to tell you that, you know, my level might be different than your level. If you're listening, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to have enough income coming in for a family of four with two kids to, you know, live a comfortable lifestyle. Um, but there's different levels of that. You got to get to that point where you can cover your basic expenses first. And if you're disciplined, you know, then that's, you know, that's kind of the first level of financial independence, I think. And I know firsthand in alignment with Chris's brand, he actually is living next level. So it's pretty cool what you created, brother. I love it. And um, Thank you, my you know, the house that your wife designed and you guys built together is absolutely phenomenal. And, um, you know, you've created some amazing stuff. So Very fortunate. Thank you. To dissect that timeline a little bit more, yep. you said 15 years from first purchase of real estate until you reach that point and right about, you yeah. weren't like just shooting for the target you weren't shooting for the yeah. finish line you were like running through the finish line and and going bigger but from the moment you decided to start investing passively into multifamily apartments until the point in which you knew you could retire even though you didn't yeah. how long was that period there but five years Five years. That was five years. Yeah. Yeah. So really what happened was I started down the single family path and I spent 10 years just kind of letting that money. It, and now remember we had the great financial, we had mm -hmm. the, you know, the great recession, right. From 2008 mm -hmm. to 2012. So during that 10 year period, we had a four year period where, you know, I, I didn't really make a lot of money in real estate and people say, well, what, what are some of the biggest mistakes you made? Um, the, the first one is I didn't hire a mentor fast enough. The second one is I didn't have enough cash. I knew I knew the recession was coming and I tried to time it and I didn't have enough cash set aside. So I couldn't take um, advantage of a lot of the, you know, the great deals that were there. Um, I didn't lose any properties. I didn't really lose any money. Um, so I kind of, I had kind of stuck with my principles there. So everything cash flowed through um, 28, uh, 2008 through 2012 cash flowed through there. Uh, but I really didn't start buying stuff again until 2012. Um, but yeah, so, but the multifamily side, Bryce, to your question, once I figured that out, you know, with the predictability, the cash flow, you know, it, five years of sticking to that plan, it got us to the point where, um, yeah, we were covering all our monthly expenses. And like turned your life on its head in, in, oh, yeah. in, in comparison Absolutely. to like the choices yeah. you can make and the freedoms you have and yeah. what's possible. Yeah. That's yeah, amazing. And I, yeah. And then, um, like I said, at that point, and, uh, you know, we, you know, we're both part of a, a mastermind. Now, you know, I, I would, I would tell people, I think a lot of people, if you're saying, Hey, I'm going to put together my financial independence plan, you say, Hey, I just want to cover my basic expenses, but you think bigger when you hit that point, you're going to have the freedom to do whatever you want. And you're going to be able to do things that you enjoy doing. And there's a lot of value in that. And what I found out Bryce was when I hit that point, my earnings exploded. And it's crazy because I was really scared when I left my role in the medical device field that I would never make that kind of money again. And I, I was right. I will never make that kind of money again. I'll never make that little ever again, which mm. is a shocking thing to say. I wouldn't have believed <laughs> that if you told me that a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's amazing. So let's talk about returns. Because sure. back in the day, you were talking yeah. about your single family returns and you were saying after tax, it was 4%, before tax, it yeah. was 7%. Yeah. And for the sake of keeping this less complicated, let's actually yeah. talk about the before tax returns that your investors yeah. have been historically getting now. 
um, in these multifamily apartment investments. And I know you're involved in other asset classes as well, but let's just talk about multifamily. Um, what kind of returns have your investors and yourself been receiving as a passive investor in these types of investments before tax? And I'm assuming after tax, it's even more profitable because yep. of all the tax write-offs. Yeah. So I think, um, so first off, I, I kind of hesitate to talk about specific returns because, um, you know, deal to deal, they can vary a lot. And we've, we've had, look, 20, 2021 was like the best year in history in multiple um, measures for multifamily real estate. Mm -hmm. um, but in my book, I talk about like a 6% cash on cash return, a 12% total return or IRR. And I think those are very, very reasonable numbers. So let, let me just use kind of the assumptions that I made when I put together my plan for financial independence. So I'm making 7% on my, on my equity that I had in my single family properties. So what I mean is if I buy a, a single family house or a townhouse or a condo, and I put say $10,000 down and I'm earning $3,000 a year, $10,000 down, $3,000 a year, that's a 30% return, right? That's strong. And then you're getting appreciation on top of that. That's a good return. Well, if I now have $100,000 of equity and I'm getting $6,000 a year in net profit, I've doubled my net profit, but now that's only 6% on my equity, right? And the mm -hmm. problem with single family real estate is you don't have a lot of tax benefits, especially if you're a high income or you phase out of those. So that 6%, I was at 7% really close, you know, boom, you're knocked down to 4% after paying taxes. That, that sucks. I get 4% in a treasury bond today. That's crazy, right? So why would I be, why would I be self-managing a property? So I said, okay, if I can get 6% cash on cash in a multifamily deal, and look, we just, we just offered a deal um, to investors. It's in uh, Myrtle Beach, and we're projecting a 6% average annualized uh, cash on cash return. Okay, so this is a very reasonable assumption and something I can point to today. Um, and by the way, if you want to learn about these investments, you can click on the invest link and we can set up a conversation and we can talk about if, if this might be a good fit for you. Um, but I think 6% is very reasonable. And in my book, I actually use 12% um, as, as my, as my long-term IRR, but you could, you could use something like 14 or 15%, which is going to double your money every five years. And that's a nice assumption. If you kind of plan out 20 years, you think, hey, if I can double my money every five years, that means 100,000 in five years becomes 200,000, 10 years becomes 400,000, 15 years becomes 800,000, and in 20 years, it becomes 1.6 million. It's pretty incredible. And that's right? not even taking into consideration that in addition to that, put those investments aside and you're potentially creating other capital somewhere else to invest right. in other things, to even compound right. that even further. That's right. Yeah. So this is a very, very simple assumption. And, you know, we teach our investors things like how to use cash value life insurance, which we call the investment optimizer and layer on another level of profitability to that. So just very reasonable assumptions. Um, but my point is, if you invest in multifamily real estate, you have the income, you have the appreciation, but you also have the depreciation, which can offset that income you're receiving. So especially if you're a high income earner, you probably don't need to pay any more taxes is my guess, or you don't want to pay more taxes. Um, if you want to pay more taxes, that's fine. If anybody's listening, thinks that people should pay more taxes, there's a very simple thing you can do. You can pull out your checkbook and you can write an amount, whatever you're comfortable with to the US treasury anytime you want. And 
anytime I hear anyone say, Hey, I don't pay my fair share. I'm a billionaire. I don't pay my fair share. I, I would like to say to that individual, write a check. What's the right amount? What's your fair share? Write a check to the treasury. So you can always write a check to the treasury if, if they're not charging you enough. Um, but <laughs> that's the nice thing. You can get this income. And then the cool thing is, you know, whether it's mobile home parks, which, you know, I love, and I know you love Bryce, it's multifamily real estate. Um, you can take this real estate and when you sell it, you can do a 1031 exchange. There's a lot of different tax options out there where you can roll your profits tax deferred forward. And that's how you can take that hundred thousand. You can, you can multiply it. You could reinvest it and continue to reinvest it and grow that number without paying tax. And then I talk about towards the end of my book, how if you really want to create generational wealth, you never really touch that money. You can live off the income at some point if that's what you want or need to do, but you can pass that on to your heirs at a stepped up basis. And this is what the wealthy do. And this is why the true wealthy, the ultra wealthy, we're talking about families worth hundred million or more. They put 25, 30% of their wealth in income producing real estate. And that's, that's families that did not produce their wealth from real estate. As my son pointed out to me yesterday, he said, dad, the Hiltons are one of the wealthiest families in the world. I said, you're right. They did that through real estate. My guess is that they have a lot more than 30% of their wealth in real estate. One of those points there that you spoke about, um, I actually teach in financial freedom mastery, which is don't kill the golden goose. And I think that's an area where we're not taught this concept. So, so many of us do it. So an example of that would be Chris goes out, he invests $50,000 in one of these multifamily deals. He's in it for five years. He doubles his money. Now he's got $100,000 and he spends 50 of it on, you know, buying stupid shit. And right. where you could get that $100,000 and then make even more cash flow off that and even yeah. more and more and more. And so the principal amounts that you're building and expanding, we don't want to touch that. And you can touch the yeah. cash flow if you want to. And you can yeah. use the cash flow if you if you really need to, yeah. but you don't want to actually like kill the golden goose. And there's a metaphor yeah. about it about the golden goose lays golden eggs. You can use yeah. the eggs if you need to, but don't cut the golden goose up to try and get anything out of it because then you kill the golden goose and no more eggs. I, I love that. Can I tell a story, Bryce? Absolutely. Um, so uh, I made an investment. Um, about four years ago into, uh, into a syndication. I just got a check last month. Um, the, the, it sold, uh, it was nice, nice multiple of, of what it did. Um, let's, it was enough that, um, I, I could have taken it and I could have gone and bought a nice new sports car, like, um, maybe like a Ferrari or something like that. So, I mean, it was, it was a big investment initially. It was an even bigger, bigger paycheck. My younger son loves sports cars. And he's, he's like, Hey dad, like, I'm like, what kind of, what kind of cars do you want to drive when you're older miles? And he's got a list of them, you know, like Bugatti and all kinds of these crazy cars. I said, all right, let's say, let's say one of those cars miles is um, let's say it's a quarter million dollars. I was like, or, or, does that sound about right? He's like, yeah, yeah. That's, that's probably, you know, some of these cars are about a quarter million dollars. I said, great. I was like, well, do you know what it would cost to lease one of those cars? And he's like, he has no idea. Right, Bryce. Um, but let's use an example. Let's say, um, and I don't even look for it. I don't know what it costs to lease one of those cars. But let's say it's $3,000 a month. Okay. So I, I, I told my son, I said, look, I said, there's, there's a couple ways you can, you can drive that car. You can go buy it. So you can earn $250,000 after tax and buy that car. And I was like, would that be cool? He's like, yeah, I want a job where I can earn that much money and buy a car like that. I said, all right. 
I said, well, you know, you don't always have to buy it. You could lease it or you could finance it. And he doesn't know what that is. I explained that to him. I said, so let's say it costs $3,000 a month. But I said, what if you were able to invest and grow that money to $250,000? I said, then you went and you invested it into another investment. Let's say a car wash price that produces <laughs> that you get to run and it produces say $3,000 a month in cash flow. I said, Miles, could you use that money to pay for the lease on that Ferrari? And he said, yeah, I could do that. I said, and you that get sound a car wash. I said, does that sound like a better plan? He goes, yeah. I said, and here's the cool thing. I said, you still have your money. He goes, well, how do I still have my money? I said, cause you're, you have equity in that car wash. And I said, if you decide after a couple of years, you don't like driving that Ferrari around, you can, you can still have the car wash and that cash flow, or you can get a different car. I said, does that sound cool that you could, he's like, yeah. So now he likes the idea of leasing a car. Um, you know, and then he also uh, likes the idea of running a business, but to your point, that's the golden goose, right? Your golden goose is that initial capital and how you multiply that capital. And you can spend your money along the way within reason. Our rules, we save 50% in our family, Bryce. So, you know, you can pick a number, but have a rule because I think it's important. I, I, I have another rule. I don't, I don't have a budget. A lot of people are like, well, how do you, how do you save money and not have a budget, Chris? Well, I have a, I have a savings tax on myself. I charge myself tax, all right? I pay my tax before I pay the government tax. So my savings tax goes into my opportunity fund. And then after I pay my taxes, any taxes I owe the government, whatever's left, I get to spend that money. So it's fun, right? If you, if you earn $10,000 and you save 50%, stick your $5,000 in your investment, go spend five grand. You know, if you've earned it and you want to spend it and that's what you want to do, you may decide at some point, you're like, well, I don't want to spend it. I just love saving. And maybe you love investing. You know, you love, like my investments are my toys in a lot of ways. You know, it's, it's a hobby. It does that. But if I want to go buy a new bike or, or a car for my wife, um, or, you know, uh, take a trip, you know, I'm, I'm, I enjoy doing that. I think it's really important to enjoy some of the, the wealth that you create for yourself as well. It's amazing. And it's, it's very basic money management that isn't taught to us in school. Hopefully they do start teaching it, no. but until then they teach you they... save it last. It's not, yeah. I think the rich richest man in Babylon teaches you to save 10% first, mm -hmm. you know? Um, that's, you know, that's an okay place to start 10%, but man, if you can save 50%, like you used to do Bryce, right? You work half and you live half, you take work a day, take a day off. You know, you only have to work half your life. That's an okay way to live. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people would love to only work, you know, three and a half days a week. And that's, that's what you can do if you save 50%, but if you save mm -hmm. 50% and you invest, then you don't, you don't have to work that much. Yeah. It's amazing. It's like managing our money effectively and having like a system in place because yeah. I bring that up in financial freedom mastery. Um, we talk before we get into the how to's we talk about what's your money management system. People are just like, I don't know, money comes in, I spend it. And then when I, when I run out, I stop buying stuff. <laughs> and yeah. that's kind of what gets us where a lot of us are today. And one of the other things that I think that uh, is kind of ingrained into our culture is to live beyond our means because it's very easy to yeah. get loans and all that kind of stuff. And when yeah. I was on my path to financial freedom, 
I didn't buy t-shirts. I didn't buy jeans. I didn't go like anywhere. I didn't need to go. I mean, we had like date night once a week and we'd go out and like have fun and we'd do a little bit of travel. But beyond that, we didn't spend money on anything else until we, we achieved financial freedom. And then I even still went a long, long, long time beyond that until I started buying rewards. Actually, I'm literally sitting looking in front of me right now as my dream drum kit that I bought at the end of last year. Um, it's in boxes in front of me right now because my my soundproof studio is getting built. But even that I had programmed myself so much to reinvest all of my money, I had to like program out of that to actually yeah. like start like spending money and enjoying myself. And it's like, I've way beyond earned it. I know uh, Grant Cardone, uh, he, he waited until he had a net worth of $10 million before he'd get rid of his shitty little car and buy yeah. something that was even reasonable, let alone something nice. Um, and he's driving and, around in Bentleys and jets and helicopters and yeah, right. yeah, he's that's well within his means. Um, no, and by the way, I love I've been to your financial freedom mastery course. I love it. I love what you teach in there. Um, and I think part of the issue is when you don't know what to do with that money, you're like, hey, I'm going to save and invest 50% of what I'm making or, or more. Well, if you don't know what to invest in, you're like, well, ah, it's just easier to buy a car and pay off the loan or buy a big house. I was talking to a friend, um, he's getting married, um, and he and his wife are having a, a baby here. Um, maybe not in that order, but, uh, and she wants to buy a bigger house because she says, well, this has always worked. I've always made money in the houses I bought and done that. And I said, well, is that really true? Like, is it actually making you money? You know, it's appreciated, but it's not paying. Like you're still paying, you're feeding it, right? You're paying into it. And I think a lot of people think, Hey, I have this house. It's an investment. Well, an investment, if it's not paying you, it's really not, it's really not making you money, right? So I think that's the problem. A lot of people, they don't, they don't have that knowledge of investments. And that's where it's so important to you know, build the system, build your knowledge of the investments. And then I was the same way, Bryce. It took me a long time to be like, to be comfortable with spending money. And then, you know, once you get to that point, you, you do sometimes have to deprogram yourself. Um, so if you're already there, if you love spending money, that's okay. You know, build your system to get the freedom. If you're that person that saves 75, 80, 90% of what they make, and you know, you're not, you're not comfortable, you know, buying yourself, you know, new clothes or a new car that's safer for your family, then let yourself live a little bit and be comfortable doing that because life is about enjoyment and money does buy experiences, travel, food, health. You can buy you can buy more time with those things through your experiences. So I think they go hand in hand um, and you just can't overdo one or the other. You have to do them in the right order. And we can spread our seed in the world. When we have the financial backing, we can be the difference we want to see in the world and we can make yeah. that difference happen at a higher capacity. And you talked about assets and liabilities and all of this. It's all financial literacy, which you're going to find in Chris's book, Next Level Income. You're going to see a link for that in the show notes. And before we wrap up here, Chris, um, what's got you most excited about the next 12 months? Yeah, I think, um, you know, Bryce, you alluded to it, and, and that's growth. I think uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. There's always uncertainty in the world. But the bottom line is that when there's uncertainty, the people that prepare that are prepared are going to have opportunity. So I'm really excited about the opportunities that are going to unfold here for us in the next 12 months. And if you're worried, if you're anxious, if you're really concerned about what's happening in the world, educate yourself, prepare yourself, 
listen to people like Bryce, check out his financial mastery course. You're going to learn about some things that are going to be real opportunities, I think, um, in the next 12 months, because when big shifts happen, um, the world changes. It doesn't change linearly. It changes a bunch and then not much for a while. So I'm really excited to see what, uh, what the world has in store for us here. And just like the positive negative conversation that we had before, when those situations arise and the uncertainty reaches its peak, people are either going to be in a position where they need someone to say, solve the problems or they are going to be solving other people's problems. And um, right. I think that we're kind of at the 11th hour now to be able to start making some moves to put ourselves in the position of helping others if that's the position that we want to be in. That's certainly the position I'm going to be in. And I know that's the position you're going to be in. And, um, you know, we're calling all of our freedom hackers right now to actually step up and put yourself in that position where you can be the one helping people in need because there's going to be some people who need some problem solved. That's for sure. Absolutely. And uh, more specifically, just before we wrap up, what projects are you working on in the next 12 months that you're super excited about? Yeah, so uh, look, we've, we've, built, we've built our investments on, um, we built our investments in our portfolio on multifamily, on a base of multifamily, um, self-storage. Uh, one of the asset classes that we've, um, I kind of joked around a little bit about this earlier, um, but one of the asset classes that we've really been jumping into in the past year are car washes. Mm. And, you know, I think as, as returns have come down a little bit in certain areas of real estate, you know, there's other opportunities for cash flow investments where investors are jumping in, private equity is jumping in um, that have healthy margins. And car washes are more of a business than a real estate play, right? There's real estate, usually about 25, 30% of a car wash um, is real estate. But it's, it's an area that I've learned a lot about. Um, I've been to the car wash shows, um, personally own a car wash. I've had coaching clients with car washes. Um, I've looked at them for, for several years now, but I think the next year is going to be really exciting um, with respect to that. And it's something that uh, we've been offering to investors here lately as well. Beautiful. So um, we've got multifamily apartments, self-storage, car washes, anything else on the horizon that's got you excited? Yeah, mobile home parks, which, uh, you know, you know, Bryce, we've been working on some stuff. And I think mobile home parks, um, you know, are an extension of multifamily. You know, they're, they're probably the most affordable and, and perform very well. And then uh, Bitcoin is something I've learned a lot about myself. Uh, personally, I've learned in the past couple of years about. Um, I think that it is, um, I was just reading an article today about inflation hedges, gold and silver. And I would put Bitcoin in that category. I mean, if you look at solving problems, if you look at, you know, places in South America that are mm -hmm. having, you know, currency issues, if you look at Africa, there was just an article I read last week about a pan-African currency, about how it can solve a lot of these problems. You know, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, Bitcoin's already there and could, could do this. Um, so I think, again, I think that's, it's, it, Bitcoin is a potential solution, you know, to a lot of the issues, you know, that we're facing in the world. And if you explore it, if you um, uh, educate yourself on it and you, uh, I'll say invest in it, then, you know, I think there's a humongous opportunity over the next, not, not just year, but five to 10 years with Bitcoin. Yeah. And there's a lot of different opportunities in the space. You can actually yeah. buy it and hold it and watch it increase. You can lend it. You can, um, you can get involved in Bitcoin mining. You can get involved in Bitcoin telemachines and all the services and everything on the back end. It's like, there's a lot of different uh, avenues to go down there. 
Absolutely. Excellent. Absolutely. Beautiful. Yeah. And I, yeah. Go um, for yeah. And I think, I mean, listen, if you, if you're, if you're interested in this quote unquote alternative investment space, which is silly, right? How did, how did real estate become alternative? You know, it happened because of, because of wall street, right. You know, and, and the same people that were poo-pooing Bitcoin, you know, two, three, four, five years ago, they're the ones who, whose hedge funds are now investing in it. Yeah. So don't, don't listen to the mainstream advice, educate yourself, listen to people like Bryce and you can do really, really well. Yeah. I can't remember. I always get black rock and black stone mixed up. I know they're mm -hmm. kind of doing similar things, but one of those guys just took a heavy position in Bitcoin. So, you know, there's a lot of big players coming in and I think that, you know, we could look at some of the market indicators and stuff. And when big players are getting involved in something, they're not doing it for no reason. So, you know, a yeah. little bit of food for thought. But at the end of this, I haven't even said, mentioned this yet, but Chris and I, we're not giving any financial advice. We're not CPAs, financial advisors or anything like that. This is just completely us sharing our stories for educational purposes. You can go do what you want with this information, talk to your own advisors and uh, make your own decisions because nobody knows your circumstances. Um, but I've really appreciated having this conversation today, Chris. I mean, you're an amazing man. You've got an amazing story. You have a profound ability to be able to pull lessons out of all of the challenges in life, no matter how challenging things get. And I really love what you've created with your investments for your investors, uh, with your education platform and mentoring platforms. And, um, you know, really to pull together and sustainably have the balance in what you're doing and have children and a wife and everything like that. I take my hat off to your brother because, you know, you're doing some amazing things. So thanks for carving out the time today to come and, and share all of this uh, beauty with us. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Good to be here. Awesome. Any final words, mate? Uh, listen, again, like we touched on before, there are a lot of problems in the world. There are a lot of challenges in the world. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world but the answer lies within yourself. So look in the mirror, take responsibility, educate yourself, make the effort and you can achieve whatever you want. Beautiful. Perfect way to wrap this up. And again, uh, we're going to have links in the show notes here where you can access Chris's book. He's even got some free books in there, some freebies. You can find out more about his investments. So keep an eye out for the links in the show notes uh, down below. And for all of our freedom hackers, this is Freedom Hack Radio. I'm your host, Bryce Robertson. Until next week. Live large, live free. G'day, this is Bryce Robertson. I'm your host here at Freedom Hack Radio, and I truly, truly hope that you got a ton of value out of the episode that we just shared with you. And if you did, make sure to subscribe on your YouTube channel. Make sure to subscribe to your favorite podcasting platform. Hit the notification button so you can find out about the next episodes as they come out. Because if you haven't achieved financial time and location freedom, you really need to be dialed in here. So make sure to subscribe and follow us along as you grow on your path to financial time and location freedom here at freedom hack radio